Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 39. Today is the 19th of February 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago occurred the following events. With Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George both absent, George Clemenceau was holding the fort as far as the major leaders were concerned. His concerns were legion. But with the American president conspicuous by his absence, there was reason to be positive that he could bend Edward House to his will. If an agreement was properly hammered out and buttoned up before Woodrow Wilson returned, then Clemenceau could achieve his major goal, that of keeping Germany down. The League had been a foolish distraction, an institution so uninteresting to him that he placed one of his least favourite individuals, Léon Bourgeois, 
upon its commission. The covenant, which had been arrived at by the 14th of February, during the third plenary conference, was the end product of several weeks of work for those that had sat on the commission. It was, of course, the fulfilment of a vision which the American president had positively longed for. To Clemenceau, on the other hand, the League was by no means completely useless, but it was no replacement for hard military power or solid diplomatic guarantees. Clemenceau was far from the only League sceptic to attend the Paris Peace Conference, but he was certainly the most well-known. He had gone along with Wilson's dream in the hope that it would satisfy the President and provide fresh opportunities afterwards to settle the real question. The real reason why they were all actually here, and hint hint, it wasn't to imagine some new world order, it was to end the great war conclusively and satisfactorily. My method, Clemenceau said to a colleague, is to deal first with the questions easiest to resolve, on which there could be immediate agreement between the Allies, and to reserve what I have to ask for the last moment. In the interval, by making concessions, I will have been able to obtain support. When the moment comes to claim France's rights, I will have leverage that I might not have at this moment. When the plenary session of the conference, that is, the assembly of all the delegates attending in Paris, complained that they were not consulted often enough, Clemenceau had sharply rebuked them, remarking, Experience has proved to me that the more numerous committees are, the less they are likely to accomplish. But, back of us, there is something very great, very imposing and at times very imperious, something which is called public opinion. It will not inquire of us whether this or that state was represented on such and such a committee. That does not interest anyone. It will ask us what we have accomplished. My business is to direct the work so that we may get things finished. Yet one could reasonably ask, once Wilson had exited the scene on the 14th of February, what had actually been accomplished? What had honestly been finished? And had there been an effective use of the time which had seemed to pass everyone by? You will probably not be surprised to learn that historians mostly say no. Geoffrey Brune, one of Clemenceau's biographers, summarised quite reasonably the intense but largely unproductive set of meetings and counter-meetings which had been held between the Council of Ten, most notably in the first two weeks of February, a very intensive period of negotiation and consultation, if there ever was one. Brune wrote, Unfortunately, it proved impossible to get things finished, although the Council of Ten met morning and afternoon, week after week. Each question that emerged seemed beset with thorns. Reparations, the Rhineland, the Tsar, Fiume and the Trentino, the Syrian Mandate, the Polish Corridor, the reorganisation of Russia, the Japanese claim to Shangtung, when some recommendation was submitted to the Council of Ten, debated and not categorically opposed, Clemenceau, to speed things up, would rasp, Objections? Adopté! And another item would be struck off the agenda, dismissed as a rule in a few paragraphs, prepared and submitted by one of the special committees. But the major problems, which involved a clash of principles, the fate of the Rhineland, the Italian claims, the reparations controversy, consumed endless hours without result. Clemenceau was anxious to speed things up, now that Wilson was gone, and he was far from the only one. With the President and Prime Minister absent, Clemenceau found that Lord Balfour and Edward House were together equally eager, as was Secretary Lansing, to arrive at certain decisions, such as the formulation of the final armistice terms. They made a modicum of progress, at least, in their collective decision to request final reports and recommendations by the 6th 
of March, soon to be postponed to the 8th of March. These reports would focus on the German terms to be presented, with specific details reserved for a final peace conference, of course, with different issues like territory and reparations all being addressed. The idea was that these would be sorted through in the week following the 6th of March so that something could be handed to Wilson upon his return, and that by the end of the month, the German delegation would be welcomed in Paris and the actual final peace conference could begin. The plan was nothing but wild optimism and was complicated almost immediately by the exit of one of its key authors, Georges Clemenceau. It had long been customary for Clemenceau to leave his residence in the Rue Franklin and be driven to a meeting with the British and Americans, sometimes at the Hotel Creon, sometimes at the Quai d'Orsay. Today, the Creon and a meeting with House and Balfour was his destination, and at 9am, as normal as clockwork would have it, Clemenceau walked out from his apartment and towards the awaiting car. Where the Premier lived was no secret, and as was also normal, a group of Parisians gathered to watch their father of victory get on his way for the day's deliberations. One member of the crowd had arrived for another purpose, though. His name was Eugene Cotton, and he was an anarchist with several mental health issues. He had determined, one way or another, to shoot the French Premier to effect the anarchist revolution which had been all the rage in the late 19th century, but which had largely given way to Bolshevik ideas instead. Cotton acted alone, but considering Europe's recent history, the damage one man and one gun could do was worth any measure of security. Clemenceau had virtually no security, save the driver in the front seat and the twenty or so people who had gathered to see him. Cotton fired several shots at Clemenceau while he was in the car. If he had had the foresight to shoot him while he was most exposed, and walking to that car, the shots could easily have been fatal. As it happened though, when one of Cotton's bullets did pierce the car, it was wildly inaccurate. Amidst the commotion outside, Clemenceau's driver attempted to speed quickly away, but he was hampered by the gathered Parisians. To their credit, these citizens weren't just getting in the way, they did actually apprehend Cotton once the initial shock evaporated and gave way to anger, and the ordeal seemed over. A bit of excitement to liven up the otherwise routine schedule. But then, Clemenceau felt it, a stabbing pain between his ribs, and he knew he had been hit. As Clemenceau was bustled out of the car, panic began to grip those who had gathered. Was the father of victory now slain during the peace, and by such a traitor as Eugene Cotton? Cotton was lucky to have escaped with his life, but so was Clemenceau. The bullet just missed vital organs, but was in so dangerous a place that it was deemed safer to refrain from removing it. Clemenceau was destined to carry this bullet with him for the remainder of his life. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There was a great deal of rumour about what had happened in the immediate aftermath of the incident, and the 20 or so witnesses did not help in the dissemination of accurate info. Because he had been bustled inside so quickly and placed gently on his sofa, it was not known except by those closest to him at the time what the prognosis was. Understandably, they feared the worst. Yet, once Clemenceau recovered from the shock, he made a point of exclaiming to his assistant, They shot me in the back. They didn't even dare to attack me from the front. Later, Clemenceau would complain about Eugene Cotton's marksmanship. A Frenchman who misses his target six times out of seven at point-blank range. Huh. Clemenceau seemed more aghast at what this said about the accuracy of French soldiers than his own security. He also found time to argue with his doctors. Doctors, I know them better than anyone because I am one myself. When his nurse declared his survival a miracle, the intensely anti-clerical Clemenceau could not resist. If heaven intended to perform a miracle, he replied, it would have been better to have prevented his aggressor from shooting him at all. Clemenceau was not vengeful either, neglecting to push for the death penalty for his assailant, who was sentenced to ten years imprisonment and released after only five years. Far more impressive than the actual damage the act did to Clemenceau was the tsunami of rumour and anxiety it caused. Before news reports confirmed that he was okay and would live, everyone assumed the worst. Roughly around the same time, the Bavarian chief minister was also shot at, and he was less fortunate than Clemenceau, dying on the spot. It seemed like the world was sliding towards the abyss, but Clemenceau's survival seemed to represent a measure of hope. Oh dear, I wonder what this pretends, was how the waiting Balfour responded to the news after their partner had refused to show up. House, true to form, took to his diary to note, This has been a memorable day, before outlining something of a manifesto in his tactics at the Paris Peace Conference, which had recently taken on a tone of urgency. He wrote, Outside the personal side of it, it is a great misfortune that Clemenceau should have been shot at this time. He had come to my way of thinking that it was best to make a quick and early peace with Germany. He was brought to this, I think, not only by realisation that Germany was, as Foch said, flattened out, but because there are grave signs of unrest in the French army. I have been trying very hard to frighten the Allies and make them feel that if peace is not made soon, trouble may someday come overnight and make it imperative that a hasty and ill-considered peace be signed instead. 
The exercise in scaring the French and occasionally the British into reaching a peace now, on the basis that circumstances could rob those involved of the opportunity to make a rational peace in the future, was greatly aided by the attack on Clemenceau. House continued to muse on his approach. In frightening these people, I'm rather amused at the ease with which it can be done. It reminds me of my boyhood when out on the frontier camping and in a country where murder was an everyday affair. At night I would invariably tell gruesome stories having to do with murder and lawlessness. I would then roll over in my blanket and go to sleep, feeling quite certain that my companions would be very watchful. Several steps away from the Hotel Creon was Harold Nicholson, who made a note of his own about the assassination attempt and how it affected him and his plans for the day. The anecdote provides some colour to the day, as Nicholson's stories generally do, so it is worth recording here. As a reminder, the Air Crow, whom Nicholson refers to, was the British Assistant Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs, and he became Permanent Undersecretary in 1920, while Jules Cambon was the former French Ambassador to Germany until the outbreak of war, and brother to Paul Cambon, who had been the Ambassador to Britain at the same time. Harold Nicholson wrote, Greek committee at 10am. We sit waiting for Jules Cambon, who does not appear. He then pokes his head around the door and says that Clemenceau has been assassinated. We start a rather desultory talk on Northern Epirus, and eventually Jules Cambon returns. He says the old man is not dead, but that he has a bullet in his lung. Expressions of sympathy. Crow, in the excitement of the moment, says that his brother-in-law has had a bullet in his lung ever since the War of 1870. Ah, says Cambon, also a German bullet. Air Crow sniggers assent, and then we return to Northern Epirus. On driving back to the Hotel Majestic, Air Crow says that the bullet which still lodges in the lung of his brother-in-law was in fact a French bullet, since his brother-in-law is German. We discuss moral courage. Ought Crow at that moment to have contradicted Cambon and said, no, it was a French bullet. Crow says he ought and that he feels like a worm for not having done so. I say he ought not. It would have shown no sense of the occasion. Humbug, says Crow. Oh, my dear Crow. Several things stick out from this extract. Not least was the assumption immediately leapt to by Jules Cambon that the bullet must have been a German bullet, since the Germans were the enemy. It was difficult to imagine a time when anything other than the current state of affairs reigned, but Air Crow's Anglo-German parentage complicated the picture, and his brother-in-law served as a reminder of the older times, when the British and Germans were not locked into a relationship of hostility and enjoyed several ties of culture, technology and, in Air Crow's case, family. It was difficult to deny that the Paris Peace Conference now looked very different from the beast which had been imagined either on the 11th of November or during the triumphant opening on the 18th of January. Something had definitely changed and the attempt on Clemenceau's life merely served to confirm that feeling. For the first time, the big three were now absent, and for opportunists, as well as the more aggressive role-playing delegates among you, that could mean that a great amount of change, or perhaps impressive progress, was about to follow. To the despair of so many in attendance, though, the deliberations of the Paris Peace Conference were effectively put on hold until these three men returned to work. In the meantime, the smaller men got down to business, whether that was in hammering out the agenda for future councils, drawing up the technical terms of the peace to be presented to the Germans, or attending no end of committee meetings on a whole range of subjects. 
The big three may have temporarily left the scene, but until their complete return on the 14th of March, the delegates, officials, diplomats, lawyers, mapmakers, printers, and everyone else did everything but sit still. (laughs) 